Last Sunday, we spent Christmas with Ruth and Boaz. This, this Sunday, we turn to Luke's narrative of the birth of our Savior. Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, the first 20 verses. Let's pray together. Our Father, on this very special Sunday, as we anticipate Christmas, we ask that your Holy Spirit would so work through your inerrant word that we, your people, may learn how better to meditate upon these truths, that our hearts and lives may be more conformed to the image of your own dear Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and that those among us today who know you not would hear the good news of the incarnation of our Savior, and that they would put their trust in the one who came and lived and died and rose from the dead. These things we pray, asking your blessing upon the word read and proclaimed, because you are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. People of God, 
on this Sunday before Christmas, I would have you to remember that in our sin we were so desperate that were it not for the mediator coming into this world to save us, there would have been no way out. We could not have been forgiven our guilt. The dominion of sin would have remained. We would have been under the wrath of God and we would have been condemned forever. Calvin says, the situation would surely have been hopeless had the very majesty of God not descended to us since it was not in our power to ascend to him. And what Calvin says is a good summary of what the Bible teaches. We had no power to ascend to God. We had no will to descend to God. We had no desire to know the true and the living God. If we were to be saved, then God must come to us. Majesty must descend. Well, how did God's majesty descend on that first Christmas morning? In answer to that question, I would say three things. First of all, majesty descended in the providence of God. That's first. Majesty descended in the providence of God. We cannot think of Christmas without thinking of God's providence. History is stressed in this passage. The birth narrative is not myth, but history. God came into this world, this fallen world, this sinful world, into the Roman world. Joseph and Mary were caught in the world of international affairs. Methodical Augustus decided to take a census. A great inconvenience for those who had to journey to hometowns to register, and especially now for Mary, pregnant Mary. The mention of Quirinius is here because Luke is stressing that this is history. Christian faith is based on sober fact. No history, no gospel. From the birth of Christ to his resurrection from the dead, it is all history. It is fact. But the text would not only have a see that it's historical, but that God controls history. God's control of history, working out his secret decree, purpose, and counsel is what we call the providence of God. History is going somewhere. It is not an endless cycle, but it has a terminal point. We do not live in a chance universe, but in a universe over which God is in control. And by stressing the birth in Bethlehem, Luke is stressing covenant history. God is saying, I have since before the beginning of time determined that I would save my people that would fall into sin. I will save them. I will know them. I will have communion with them. I will show them my eternal love and I will fulfill my purpose. And so they must go to Bethlehem which was the place where David had lived. But it was insignificant in the eyes of the world, yet its significance was determined by God, who 750 years before this passage was written, before this took place, said, But thou Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto thee, who is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting." Now someone has said, Caesar's whim was God's decree, and that is absolutely right. The 90-mile journey to Bethlehem necessitated by the emperor's decree was really necessitated by God's decree behind Caesar's decree. The whole Roman Empire was being used by God to fulfill his promise to his people to save us from our sins, and the Roman Empire had no idea. 
In all their pomp, they did not know that the true Lord was determining everything, and this is still the case today. Take heart, people of God. Your God is not some pitiful, powerless, helpless God with a little g who cannot rule, cannot reign. He is the Lord of history, the Lord over time and space. He is the eternal God, the Lord of heaven and earth, and he has the whole world in his hands. Don't be intimidated by the judgment of the world that could see no work of God in bringing this young mother to this place of squalor that the Savior may be born. God promised to commune with his people, to raise up a king to sit upon the throne of his father David. And once again we see that we must not judge what God is doing by feeble sense, by what we can see or fail to see. And believer, with all your heart, believe that God is in his holy plan, even sovereign over the sin of man, as he demonstrates here. You know, there's a prayer of Thomas Cranmer that reads this way, God's providence is never deceived. Precious words, those. God's providence never deceived. God will bring to his people what he has promised. He will bring to us what is profitable to us, and no one can stop him. Listen, Augustus Caesar claimed to be a man who became God. But Augustus Caesar is in his grave, and Jesus Christ is not. What a turning of the tables. Biographer of Augustus, John Buchan, says, Jesus was to proclaim a kingdom mightier than the Roman, and to tell of a world saved not by man who became God, but by God who became man. I cannot overly stress how important it is for your Christian living, your daily Christian living, to understand that God who brought his son into the world is the God who is in control of history, who continues to be in control of history. You know this little bit from Poor Richard's Almanac by Benjamin Franklin? Surely some of you do. For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For the want of a rider, the battle was lost. For the want of a battle, the kingdom was lost, and all for the want of a horseshoe nail. Well, in a way that that old deist would never have understood, the lives of God's elect are down to the details controlled by the providence of God, as is this world in which we live, in such a way that he is sovereign and man is yet fully responsible for what he does. Was God out of control when his son was born in Bethlehem? Was he out of control when he went to a cross? No, and he is in control still. And so, people of God, you can say with confidence with the hymn writer, Ere into being I was brought, thine eye did see, and in thy thought my life in all its perfect plan was ordered ere my days began. And you can live out of confidence in that. So we may not talk about Christmas without the grand truths of the sovereignty of God and the providence of God. We see God, we are filled with adoring wonder that he would condescend to save sinners like us. 
And we're caught up in a vision of the grandeur of God's transcendence and majesty and glory. And we recognize that God is working out His will behind all phenomena. And every trace of self-dependence for salvation is absolutely eradicated by this truth. And we are made thoroughgoing Christian supernaturalists. Majesty descended in the providence of God. But majesty also descended, and this is second, majesty also descended in utter humiliation. Majesty descended in utter humiliation. Bethlehem, again, totally insignificant in man's eyes. No guest room to house the poor pregnant virgin. She had to place her little boy in a manger, a feeding trough for animals. And she wrapped her baby in strips of cloth, perhaps torn from her own veil. What is being stressed here by Luke's gospel? What does the Lord want you and me to see? Well, I'll tell you. This was God's eternal son, yet Mary's little baby. She took him in her arms. Joseph undoubtedly held this baby and rocked him. God came in the flesh and nourished from his mother's breast, skin on skin, real flesh, a real incarnation. God became man. He took our nature. God assumed human nature. Imagine it. Mary was the mother of him who was the eternal son of God. And how practical is this? There would be no obedience in our place without him, no paying of the price of our sin without him. Without this, no cross, no resurrection, no salvation. He took our nature. That's utter humiliation. But not only did he take our nature, but he took also our condition. And that also the text stresses. As the larger catechism puts it, he came in circumstances of more than ordinary abasement. He came to save sinners who experienced the effects of the fall, to bear our misery, to be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. His birth already points to the cross. His humiliation was, so to speak, a prophecy and promise that he would suffer and bleed and die for us in our place upon the cross. And so the Christmas message is not sentimentalism. It is about sin and wrath and grace It is about our rebellious natures. It is about Christ who came to bear God's wrath and to remove God's judgment. Christmas is about Christ born to atone for sin. I could not reach God, but He has reached me. And He came and took our nature. He came to share our condition. And in so doing, think of this, in so doing, He also came to reveal the heart of of the Father. Would you know what God is like? Here is where you find him. William Temple said, the incarnation is the way in which divine truth can be expressed not because of our infirmity but because of its own nature. What is personal can be expressed only in a person and God is expressing himself to us, revealing his heart to us in the person of his Son. Now think about it. Do you want to know what God is like? Here is where you see it. Can you not see here love incarnate? Can you imagine such love that the holy God would descend 
infinitely descend, infinitely condescend to take our nature and to take our condition and to reveal the heart of God. To come into a sinful world to bear the penalty of our sins. He assumed our nature to bear the penalty of our sins, people of God, yes, but by all means see love in the crutch. But as you see love there, also see that in his love he is intervening to save wrath-deserving sinners like you and me. Don't sentimentalize the love of God. Rather, see the love of God against the backdrop of the revealed reality that God is a consuming fire. The cradle leads to the cross where we see God's inexpressible indignation against sin and what it took to redeem us by sending his own son to be the propitiation for our sins. When you look at Christmas, you need to see there is only one way I could be saved, and that is through what Jesus Christ did, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So there is no other religion. There is no philosophy. There is no teaching in this world. There is no one who claims to be a Savior that can redeem you. Only Jesus Christ can save you and me from our sins. Majesty descended in the providence of God. Majesty descended in utter humiliation. But people of God, will you also see that majesty descended to the glory of God. We have in this text angels and shepherds. Who would have imagined such a combination? Angels and shepherds. The birth of Christ did not only concern earth, it concerns heaven. Christ is Lord of all things, of heaven, of earth, of men, of angels. He is Pantocrator. He rules over everything. And so we have these shepherds, a despised class, unwelcome in courts of law, unwelcome in polite society, but God overthrows the lofty. Had not Mary sung in her Magnificat in chapter 151 and following, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. So what a contrast. Shepherds and angels. First one in the heavenly splendor who brings an announcement and then an entire host of angels. Have you never noticed that Luke's gospel, by the way, is the gospel filled with joy? That joy is an emphasis of Luke's gospel? It begins with praise in the temple. It ends with praise in the temple. Luke alone gives the joyful greeting of Elizabeth, the Magnificat, the song of Mary, the Benedictus, the song of Zacharias, the Gloria in excelsis, the song of the angels, the Demetrius, the song of Simeon. Luke is very fond of using the expression glorifying God, praising God, blessing God. And in his gospel and in the book of Acts, Luke uses either the verb or the noun form of joy 22 times. 
The message that is being brought here is the message of joy. In other words, the message brought by these angels is good news. What is that message? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Basically the message is don't be afraid. Fear of judgment strikes the heart even now by seeing heavenly radiance has been removed by the coming of the child who unites heaven and earth ultimately in the cross. And there's a strange sign. You will find the babe lying in a manger. There he will be in in swaddle, just rags. Who would expect to find the Savior of the world in such humble circumstances? Why, this is the way in which undoubtedly the shepherds' wives would wrap their own little babies, isn't it? This is humiliation indeed. Who would have expected the message to come from heaven to angels, to shepherds. And so the presence of angels tells of the harmony of heaven and earth restored in Christ. The angels left the shepherds in pitch black, and the shepherds obeyed and found the child just as the angel told them. And I wonder, I've often wondered, did they touch him? Did they take their rough fingers and rub his cheek? Maybe ruffle his hair? Did they say, may we hold it? Do you think? Maybe. Do you think? A Savior who is Christ the Lord, real flesh and blood. In their message, all credit for salvation goes to God. Glory to God in the highest. And only when God is seen to be in his rightful position do we see ourselves for who we are and our need for what he really is and what he has done. Do you understand that? That if it took the condescension of the second person of the Trinity to save me, what must my need be? That if it took the condescension of the second person of the Trinity, how deep my sin must be. That if it took the condescension of the second person of the Trinity, how impossible, how utterly impossible for me to save myself from my sins. No wonder the angels shout out in good old Calvinistic fashion. Sola Deo Gloria. That's the song of the angels. And Mary? Mary heard about these things. She listened to these things. Everyone wondered. But look at verses 18 and 19. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things pondering them in her heart. By the way, some of you young ladies, believers in Jesus, you want to be godly? Here's how it's done. She pondered these things in her heart. As a matter of fact, when we come to verse 51... The boy Jesus in the temple, 
It says his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. It was her life's habit. Undoubtedly, growing up in a covenant home from her earliest youth to ponder in her heart the things of God. Will you join with Mary in her holy meditation this morning? May we join with her in pondering these things in our hearts? Will you do that? Let's do it now. The infinite became finite. The eternal was subject to time. The unchangeable became changeable. The divine became human. God became man. Do you know this poem by 17th century poet Richard Crashaw? That the great angel-binding light should shrink his blaze to shine in a poor shepherd's eye, that the unmeasured God so low should sink as prisoner in a few poor rags to lie, that from his mother's breast he milk should drink, who feeds with nectar heaven's fair family, that a vile manger his low bed should prove, who in a throne of stars thunders above, that he whom the sun serves should faintly peep through clouds of infant flesh, that he the old eternal word should be a child and weep, that he who made fire should fear cold, that heaven's high majesty his court should keep in a clay cottage by each blast controlled, that glory's self should serve our griefs and fears, and free eternity submit to years." And free eternity, God the eternal, submit to years. I cannot say anything ever more profound than this. There is nothing more profound. God came down. Young people, not just not just a baby. This is God in the flesh. God came down. Let me close with these words from Martin Luther. You see how a person rejoices when he receives a robe or ten goldens. You rejoice when you receive a present. But how many are there who shout and jump for joy when they hear the message of the angel, to you is born this day the Savior? 
Indeed, the majority look upon it as a sermon that must be preached, and when they've heard it, consider it as a trifling thing and go away just as they were before. This shows that we have neither the first nor the second faith. We do not believe that the virgin mother bore a son and that he is the Lord and Savior, unless added to this, I believe the second thing, namely that he is my Savior and Lord. When I can say, this I accept as my own, because the angel meant it for me, then if I believe it in my heart, I shall not fail to love the mother Mary, or even more the child, and especially the father. For if it is true that the child was born of the virgin and is mine, then I have no angry God, and I must know and feel that there is nothing but laughter and joy in the heart of the Father, and no sadness in my heart. Do you see? If your trust is in Christ alone, no matter what sadnesses you may experience in this fallen world or even bring into this service of worship this morning, in terms of the great thing, how you relate to God, in terms of the great thing, knowing Him, in terms of the great thing, being forgiven, if you know the Son who came into this world, born of the Virgin, who went to the cross, who rose from the dead... There is nothing but laughter and joy in the heart of the Father and no sadness in my heart. And God's people said...